So friends, a lot of us know our share of Bible jokes, but how about Christian riddles? Here's one. Where do we gain the most strength, and yet a lot of us feel the weakest at? Or what can we do literally anywhere, but struggle to find time for? Now, you've heard me just read the text, and you might have seen the sermon title on the screen, so you know that the answer to the riddle is prayer. Friends, I just want to say at the outset that I love you all, and I'm with you. I feel the struggle a lot of us feel with prayer. In some ways, I kind of feel it more because part of my role here at the church is to oversee prayer. But me preaching on prayer like me preaching on prayer right now is kind of like the cookie monster doing an ad for iFit or Weight Watchers or something. <laughs> I'm not where I should be, but I'm striving for it. And this is a call for you all to strive together with me. But I also want you to know at the outset that God loves you. Not like me, he loves you perfectly. So this message isn't to bring condemnation, but it's to encourage you to run to the Father whose arms are ever open to receive you in faith. Now our message today is on Christian prayer. I qualify it that way because a lot of religions pray, and even non-religious people sometimes pray. But as a gathering of people who profess to be followers of Christ, we are concerned with praying to the one and only true God as revealed in the scriptures. This is important because as we heard from Pastor Julian last week, it starts with preaching, the communication and comprehension of God's word. After all, we cannot pray to a God we don't know. So what is prayer? And how does it fit in with the church's fulfillment of the Great Commission? I've come across a number of analogies to describe and define prayer, but they always seem to be tied to God's word one way or another. Here's one definition that I read recently. It says, prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. It's my aim today to persuade us that prayer is invaluable to the Christian life. It is the very language of our faith. Now, I hope how this fits with the Great Commission will become obvious as we consider three points from Matthew 6. The posture of prayer, the practice of prayer, and the pursuit of prayer. So we'll start with the posture of prayer. Our text today is located within the larger context of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that goes from Matthew 5 to 7. As he begins his public ministry, he delivers this blockbuster sermon about the life and conduct of those who will be citizens of his coming kingdom. In chapter 5, he shows that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he calls his followers to a higher conduct that gets at the heart of the law. In Matthew 6, this looks like pursuing true righteousness, not a public show like the religious leaders of the day. He addresses three religious activities, giving, fasting, and praying, which is our focus for today. So as we come to this passage to see what Jesus has to say about prayer, let us first consider the motive. 
Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus says. They're actors merely playing at praying so that others will see them and say how religious and godly they are. They're not really interested in God's glory or gaze, but that of people. Their reward is that their desires will be fulfilled. They will get the social recognition they crave, but it ends there. You, on the other hand, are to pray, to, the, to pray in secret to the one who sees in secret. Praying in secret doesn't mean you can't pray publicly. Jesus himself prayed publicly many times, and as we'll see later, corporate prayer is assumed to be a practice among believers. The point being made here is that you don't turn a religious activity into a pursuit of recognition. Prayer is an exercise in humility, not boasting. This is why the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As we seek to be a church that prays, we must be mindful of the temptation to be praying to be seen by others. Whether we pray on our own or with others, God's gaze is what we are to long for. But as we consider the posture of prayer, not only do we need to be mindful of the motive, but also the manner in which we pray. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Jesus goes on to say, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So when you pray, don't be a hypocrite in your motive, but also don't be a Gentile in your manner. Simply put, the Gentiles were those outside of the community of God's people, those who were not in a covenant relationship with him. For example, the Apostle Peter says in Ephesians 2, Remember that you were at that time, before salvation, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, how does this alienation and separation show itself in prayer? Well, they pile on words to try to either persuade or nag their so-called gods to respond to them. To be clear, the issue here isn't repetition. Jesus teaches in Luke 11 and Luke 18 the blessing of persistence in prayer. Jesus himself also prays repeatedly in one of his darkest moments as he anticipated the crucifixion. See, what, be, what is being addressed isn't repetition, but faithlessness. 
It becomes clear when we consider Jesus' reason why we shouldn't be like them. He says in verse 8, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He repeats this again at the end of the chapter in verses 31 and 32. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Friends, what would your manner in prayer reveal about your relationship with the one you are praying to? See, for the Christian, your manner in prayer should not be as one coming to bother, bribe, or bamboozle, or begrudging God. Rather, you come to one who is your father and already knows what you need. But if he already knows what I need, then why pray, you might ask? Why doesn't he just give me what I need so I don't have to ask? One way of explaining this that I read recently from R.T. France was to think about prayer not as the communication of information, still less as a technique for getting things from God, as in the more words you put in, the more results you get out, but as the expression of the relationship of trust which follows from knowing God as Father. See, when I believe that He is a good Father and that He knows beforehand what I need, He has already made provisions and preparations, and so when I ask, I trust that he is ready and able to answer even before I was aware of my own need. Indeed, there is more to prayer than the communication of information. Tim Chalice writes, prayer is meant to change you. As you seek God in prayer, your faith grows. God enables you to see his goodness, his grace, his glory, and even his purposes. As you seek him, you will find that you are the one being transformed. God has purposed to work in us, even in our asking, whether or not he answers the way we expected. But how do we gain such a confidence to come before him as a heavenly father? See, I've heard some people say they don't need the gospel, they don't need Jesus because we are all God's children. There is a sense where that is true because he has fathered us by creating us, but because of our sins, we have been alienated from God, our relationship broken because of our rebellion. Sinners now have no right to come before a holy God, and yet, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the debt owed for our rebellion. His resurrection on the third day was proof that his payment was accepted, and part of what he has accomplished for us is giving those who trust in him the right to be sons and daughters of God. Through Christ, we have been given access to the God of the universe. Can you even begin to fathom what that means? What power we can access? What comforts we can know? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. 
See, if prayer is the language of our faith, then knowing the posture of prayer is like doing linguistics, approaching the language carefully to understand its structure and ways even before you begin to speak it. We come to prayer not to put on a show for others, but seeking an audience with the one that truly matters. And we come to him not on the not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of the relational intimacy we have found in Christ. We believe in prayer as a church because we have been given unrestricted access to an all-powerful God that happens to also be our Father. Now that we know the posture of prayer, let us look at the actual practice So the practice of prayer. As we've been looking at our passage, we see that Jesus cares about why we pray. That was in verses 5 and 6. And how we pray. That was verses 7 and 8. Now we will see that he also cares about what we pray. There's some disagreement about whether Jesus intends these next uh, few words to be an actual prayer or as a format for prayer. But I believe either way, as long as we come to prayer in the right posture, then we get at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. So what should be our concern when we come in prayer? Looking at these next few verses, we can group what Jesus teaches into two categories, reverence and requests. So first, reverence. In verses 9 to 10, we read, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've spoken of the relational intimacy that allows us to approach God as Father. However, we must also remember that he remains God in heaven. So as we come to him, we are taught here that our concern must be for his glory above all else. This is shown in the three-part doxology about his name, his kingdom, and his will. He says, hallowed be your name. God's name is an extension of who he is, and he is already hallowed. He is already holy. This prayer is not asking God to be something he isn't already. What is in view here is our perception of him. This petition is for people to rightly recognize his holiness, for our eyes to be opened. See, we can rephrase it this way. May everyone see you as you truly are and give your name the honor it is due. Then he says, your kingdom come. From the Gospels, we learn that Jesus is God's chosen king foretold in the Old Testament who would usher in his everlasting kingdom. For example, the psalmist says in Psalm 110, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And until he returns and all his enemies are humbled under his feet, the church is charged with the great commission, proclaiming the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. This means that the kingdom is already here, and yet, not yet. 
So when we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for people to come to full submission to his rule and reign. Because make no mistake, he already reigns. Next, we are taught to pray, your will be done. Theologians can sometimes get caught up about, you know, what is meant by God's will. But I think there is a simple understanding here. See, God has revealed to us his desire for mankind through his word. So this prayer is a simple response saying, amen, let it be so. Recognition of who he is. Submission to his rule and reign, the exercise of his heart for his creation, these are realities already present in heaven. And as believers, we long to see these things also realized on earth, and so we pray for them. Is it any surprise then that this should be the primary concern and desire for the church? After all, isn't the church on earth meant to be a glimpse of this reality in heaven where his name is honored, his rule is submitted to, and his will is exercised? See, we pray as a church because we want those who are currently living for themselves with no regard to their ruler and creator to humble themselves before him and come to know him as their heavenly father. Of course, we have needs and worries, and we bring those to him too, but more than what we want, our hearts ought to burn for what he wants. The church has been appointed as the means by which God will make his name known, and we pray because we know that we can't do it in our own strength. All our efforts in discipleship and evangelism and missions and church planting, it is all Hopeless without him. Unless the Lord builds, we labor in vain. If you're listening to this now and you still stand apart from Christ, please know that God wants you, friend. See, you can either bow down before him now as a follower or be bowed down before him later as a footstool, and you don't want to be the second. Repent, admit your your rebellion, turn to him in faith, believe in Jesus. See, reverence in our practice of prayer is like the vowels in our language of faith. It gives life to our speech and makes it sound beautiful. Just as English with only consonants and no vowels eventually becomes unrecognizable as English, so also prayer with only requests and no reverence eventually becomes deficient of what true prayer is meant to be. So the question then is, how recognizable are our prayers right now? But even as we pray for heavenly realities, Jesus is mindful that the context we exist in isn't in heaven, but here on earth. And so the second category he teaches us to pray is to do with requests. Look with me at verses 11 to 13. He says, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil 
These three requests are a further reminder that prayer is an exercise in humility because not only are we utterly dependent on him for the grand things to come, but we are also utterly dependent on him for the momentary things too. Specifically listed here, provision, pardon, and protection. Now, a couple of people have asked me when my guinea pigs will make their way into one of my sermons. Well, Azarina and I have two little furry friends named Gilbert and Herbert. We gave them classy names because they're classy guinea pigs. So every morning when they hear us uh, waking up, Gilbert particularly starts to call out to us, weak, 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 weak. It's cuter when he does it. Um, So we have translated this to mean, oh, waiter, waiter, come feed us. When they both get so riled up, it goes into stereo and it sounds like a car alarm going off in our living room. But the funny thing is, they don't do this out of humility, but out of survival instincts. See, they know that they are dependent on something or someone outside of themselves to provide for them. We are told to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Spoken to a Jewish first audience, this most likely would have brought to mind the Israelites in the wilderness. See, during the Exodus, God provided manna, bread from heaven, for the people. They had to trust God to provide day to day. And whenever they tried to gather more than they were supposed to so they wouldn't have to rely on God, it didn't work. See, God did it to humble them and discipline them so that they would learn to trust and obey him. Here, Jesus teaches us to ask for our daily provision, not as pets of an unreliable owner, but as children of a trustworthy father. The church's humble reliance on God for provision reveals to the watching world that we are different. We are not like the Gentiles who do not know God and go from moment to moment in anxious worry. Rather, we live in awareness that we have a heavenly Father who is more aware of our needs than even we are, and we can trust Him to sustain us all of our lives. We are also uh, taught, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. There is nowhere on earth where two people can live in perfect harmony. Even in the church where God's rule and reign is most recognized, there will still be hurt and disagreements. However, just as we are mindful of our sins before God and pray for his forgiveness, so also we are called to be mindful of how others sin too and to extend the same mercy that we are asking for. After all, how can we justify holding on to a debt that doesn't compare to our immeasurable debt that has been forgiven in Christ? Finally, we are taught to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, whether we take the word here to mean temptation or testing, what is clear is that evil, or more likely the evil one, is the agent which we are told to pray for deliverance from. 
the Bible is full of encouragement for the people of God that no matter how powerful our adversary is, God is greater still. And we can lean on his strength to resist and to overcome. This is important to know because for the kingdom of heaven to advance, for the great commission to be fulfilled, war is inevitable. But not physical war, for we are told in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So even as we pray for the earth to be filled with the glory of God, we are also mindful that we need provision, so we pray for our daily bread. We need pardon, so we pray for forgiveness. And we need protection, so we pray for deliverance. Each of these requests is wholly reliant on who God has revealed himself to be in his word because prayer is the language of our faith. The vowels that are our reverence sound good in our speech, but they don't communicate the full picture without the structure that the consonants, our requests, give to them. For example, if I came up here and all I said was, Oh, you are, oh, you are, you might wonder if I stayed up a bit too late last night or I had too much eggnog over Christmas. But if I put the consonants in, glory to God, glory to God, it makes sense. You're not left wondering what planet I'm from or what rock I live under, but you have someone living in the same messed up world as you are, and yet is calling attention to God. See, God's people praise him and long for his glory in real time, in real context, with real struggles. To pray for God's glory all day long without being genuine about our struggles might reveal that we either don't trust him with our daily lives or that we are detached and removed from our needs and the needs of others. Friends, there is so much that can be said about prayer. But I think we kind of have covered the basics. So we've done linguistics. We know that prayer should be done with the right motive, with eyes on God, not on man. And it should be done in the right manner as children come into a heavenly father, not as strangers in a flea market. Okay, we got that. We've also got an idea of how to form our words. We need our reverence, the vowels, and our requests, the consonants. Okay, so we can now get out a word or two. But let's now take some time to think about how we work at fluency in the language of our faith as we consider finally the pursuit of prayer. James and I have just finished another grueling semester in Greek and Hebrew. And at this point, I honestly can't remember which of the two languages nun or nu belong to. All I remember is that they're the letter N in English. See, fluency in any language requires hard work and diligence and practice, and the language of our faith is no different. But listen, what is different about this language, however, is that 
our joy in communing, communicating with God increases with our fluency, but we do not need mastery of the language to communicate with God now. How amazing is that? The Apostle Paul says to the Romans, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Even when we can only get two words out, the Spirit of God prays with us and for us where we fail with our words. That's amazing, but we still want to grow in our fluency, right? So what could it look like? See, our growth as a church in prayer corporately is dependent on our growth in prayer individually. And here are five quick suggestions for us as we seek to grow in prayer. The first one is a simple one. Just pray. Tim Kerr writes, The hardest thing about prayer is the small gap between thinking about praying and actually praying. That is just to begin. We can come up with a thousand reasons why we can't pray in a particular moment. But the truth is, naturally speaking, there is no such ideal moment to pray. See, the whole world won't just go on pause and say, hold up, guys, let's take five. He needs to go pray. She needs to pray, y'all. Let's take five and come back. No, we have to wrestle that time out. The good thing is, Prayer can literally be done anywhere with God, in your highest peaks or your lowest valleys, literal or metaphorical. We have many desires as a church for great things to the glory of God, and yet none of it, absolutely none of it is possible without prayer. But how sad it is that the busier we make ourselves, one of the first casualties is our prayer life. Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this irony when he writes, There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. See, you can't learn a language by thinking about learning a language. You have to actually do it. Just pray. The second suggestion is pray often. Our text today assumes that believers will pray. Jesus says twice, when you pray. But Jesus also assumes that we will pray daily because he teaches us to ask for our daily provision. As believers, we are expected to pray often. Now, let me tell you a secret. We will grow weary from our prayers long before God grows weary of us, which is never, by the way. David Mathis writes, God is more ready to hear us than we are to pray. The more we pray, the more we get used to the language of our faith. So if you want to get better at praying, then pray often. Third suggestion is to pray honestly. 
See, trying to sugarcoat your prayers to hide the despair and turmoil in your heart or avoid the issues you're facing is no better than the hypocrites who stand to pray only to be seen. They just want to sound good. See, the psalmist says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. I'm not saying that you should pray with no regard to who you are praying to, but rather that he already sees our hearts and minds. He knows our thoughts, so there's no point putting a front with him. Just give it all to him. Some of us struggle to pray because we don't know how to phrase things or we're worried that we might say things the wrong way. But letting that keep us from praying is like saying we don't want to practice saying a word in a new language because we're afraid to say it wrong. Of course you're going to say it wrong at first. But we learn and we grow. The same psalmist from earlier says, Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. Take your complaints and your moans to your Father and pray honestly. Our fourth suggestion is to pray Scripture. See, God has revealed himself to us and his word gives us the words to relate with him. If prayer is us calling on God to show up and to come through on his promise, then what better way to do so than praying his promises? This, for example, is why we structure our prayer meetings this way, to be anchored and led by a passage of Scripture. We want our prayers to be in line with what God has said. If we want to grow our vocabulary in the language of our faith, then we can turn to God's Word and pray Scripture. Our final suggestion is to pray with others. See, you might have noticed that our passage today is structured in a corporate sense. Our Father, give us, forgive us, deliver us. See, this is because our faith is not only individual and personal, but it is also communal. We have been placed into God's family as those who will encourage and, be, and need encouragement to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So when we pray with others, we get the opportunity to teach and learn how to pray. We get to be reminded that the world is bigger than our needs and concerns. We get to be united in the common cause of the church in calling for God's rule and reign to continue to go forth. You can grow in prayer by praying with other believers. Whether that's at one of the meetings here at the church or just cultivating a habit of praying with other believers whenever you hang out together. I personally love our prayer meetings. I get to see people responding to God's word in prayer because they are aware that they are powerless to obey without his help. I especially love our grace nights in the summer and our annual week of prayer Here's a plug for the week of prayer. It starts today at 5 p.m. Get your bulletins. Wow, that's quite the plug. But I, I love them because they challenge me to intentionally pray in a systematic way for my brothers and sisters here at GFC. That's the very thing I committed to by becoming a member here. Don Carson, reflecting on Paul's prayer 
prayers for others, says that that means if we are to improve our praying, we must strengthen our loving. As we grow in disciplined self-sacrifice and love, so we will grow in intercessory prayer. So friends, as we strive to be a church that prays, we must remember the posture of prayer, praying to see our heavenly Father not to be seen by man. We must remember the practice of prayer, seeking his hand while living for his heart. And we must cultivate the pursuit of prayer. Doing these things will get us closer to speaking the language of our faith a little better. Why don't we try practicing that language now? Please pray with me.